As is often the case, I found today's guests, and yes, there are two of them, on social media. Sarah and Lisa Listen are the mother-daughter duo behind the Food Memory Project, which helps people to collate and share their own food memories and build stronger ties with each other. Sarah is a dietitian and food blogger who has always measured her life in meals, and her mum Lisa is a genealogist with a passion for helping people uncover and share their family's history. They started the Food Memory Project in 2020 from their homes in Tennessee and North Carolina, and are calling in this morning at an unspeakably early hour as they're both on Eastern Standard Time. Thank you so much for joining me, especially so early. Oh, I have my coffee. (laughs) Thank you so much for having us. So what time is it where you are? It is just about 10 minutes after six (laughs) o'clock. So it's... Oh my goodness. (laughs) It's early, but we're excited. I feel like I got the better end of the deal. So it's just gone 11am here in the UK. So yeah, uh, thank you anyway. Uh, Hopefully you've got your coffee and you're you're managing to keep your eyes open. So far, so good. (laughs) And I have my tea. Right. So you're a mum and daughter team. So tell me and the listeners a little bit about your relationship. Has food always been a big part of what bonds you? You know, I would have to say that, yes, it has always been kind of important to our bond as we grew, as Sarah grew up. I grew up learning to cook from my mother, from my grandmother, and I really enjoyed it. It was just something that was just kind of natural, you know, as we went as, as I grew up. And ever since Sarah was a little girl, she has all, she's always loved food. It seemed to come naturally. I would go grocery shopping with her. She'd just be, I don't know, not even two years old. And I would turn around and she would have grabbed a package of mushrooms out of the back of my cart and opened them and start eating them <laughs> in the store. Um, broccoli. People were amazed, you know, like, what was I going to say? She's eating broccoli, you know, too. So, um, so this was some, I mean, she's just always had that innate interest in it. And then when I would cook, she would stand on a chair beside me at the counter and she would start, she was stirring up lasagna and stuff with me. Um, she, she loved nothing better than, than just stirring and baking and figured out how to make pretzel dough. So she could, cause she liked playing with pretzel dough. And it's like, it's like Play-Doh, right? So, mm. so I think it's always just been part of our lives that that maybe we hadn't didn't think about consciously, but it was just kind of always there for us and something we've always done together. Mm. So it kind of made sense to to do this project together, which we will talk about in a in a moment. And so, Sarah, obviously, your mum's just explained how you you grew up loving food from a really young age, and actually, food forms part of your career now. So you're a registered dietitian nutritionist. Is Am I saying that right? Yes, that's right. It's a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> so what does that actually entail? So at a very basic level, being a registered dietitian means that I am a trained expert uh, in nutrition, in diet. Um, I'm qualified to counsel people on a variety of different conditions that might have um, a nutritional component to managing them. So things like heart disease, diabetes, high blood pressure, weight loss, in some cases, weight gain. And actually in my work, you know, when I'm seeing patients, sometimes I have to ask about their food memories in a clinical sense. I want to get a sense of kind of what they eat on a daily basis and if they remember what they ate yesterday. Um, And then also, you know, even though I'm concerned with the medical aspect of things, I always want to figure out kind of the reasons behind their food choices. Because a lot of times it's not just you know, people don't always eat for nutritional reasons. You know, they might eat for comfort or for convenience or cost, or um, there might be cultural factors at play. Um, so it's it's really 
kind of a, a blending of my two worlds and remembering that even when I'm counseling, there's a lot more to it than just calories and nutrients. That's really interesting because I think uh, a lot of people will hear the word dietitian and just assume, as you say, that that calorie side of things, that that's really what it is. But actually, it sounds like it's a whole lot more than that. It's it's about looking at food and your consumption of food in a kind of holistic way to make it to make you better, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And I always tell people I didn't go into nutrition because I'm a health nut because I'm absolutely not that. It's ask any dietitian. We went into this field because we love food. Just simple as that. Well, you're speaking to the right people. (laughs) You've got the right people listening and you're speaking (laughs) to the right person this morning. Um, And Lisa, uh, over to you. So you're a genealogist and uh, I've, I've just really fascinated to speak to you both this morning because I actually studied history when I was at university and obviously also love food. So um, you're like the, the perfect duo, I think, for me. So mm-hmm. what does a genealogist do? Oh, well, that's, that's I'm so excited that you were a history major too. Yes. So as a genealogist, I research family histories. I um, spend a lot of time tracking people down and creating um family trees and learning, but it's more than just adding a name to a tree. I spend a lot of time in the records and understanding what our ancestors were doing to be able to tell their stories. It's very important to me as a genealogist and family historian to not only document the actual names and dates, I'm fascinated with the stories. And I think that's really important that we learn about what our ancestors did and how they thought. And so that drives me a lot to into the records and um, following those trails wherever they lead me <laughs> on the records. And before we pressed record, we were actually just talking about the fact that you've done a bit of work on your own family tree and that you, um, you guys as a family have some English and Scottish and Irish heritage, which is quite cool. That, that is something, yes. Mine turns, mine is almost exclusively in there in the UK and, um, and then Ireland. And it's, it's been a lot of fun to be able to, to track that down. It's, it's quite a ways back. It's a number of generations back for me personally, but, um, I have determined different areas of England that my ancestors have been to that were originally out of. And so when travel is okay, again, um, I have a, a, my own heritage trip that I want to take and hopefully can drag Sarah along with me. <laughs> mm, absolutely. That sounds like it will be a great trip. And kind of compared to, to the USA, you'll be able to cover so much ground in, in such a short amount of time as well. So um, it will probably feel quite small, but I'm sure you'll you'll love kind of following those trails. So when you're looking at, at family histories, how often does food crop up? It's actually cropping up more and more. It, really in the past years, I've done research because what I'm discovering is, and, and what I teach my readers over on my blog, is that you can get clues to your family's cultural heritage, their their ethnic heritage through their cul- your culinary experiences. You know, what foods always show up at a table? Um, do you know why they show up? Are they great great grandmother's um, jello dish here in the South? <laughs> or is it, you know, what foods are always showing up? Those will give you clues to what was important to your ancestors, what was available to them, you know, what could they grow? Were they farmers? Well, what crops could they grow? And that's an idea of perhaps 
where they settled or why they settled where they did. Um, so I also like to use old photographs if of my family. And so I go in and those casual kind of throwaway photographs that nobody ever threw away. A lot of times they're like food tables from food families. And those are great places to pick up um, clues to somebody's culinary heritage and, and what types of foods our ancestors ate. I love it. I love it. Because I guess it's that thing, isn't it, with many families where you always have a certain dish at a certain celebration, but you don't really know why. It's just that it's always been there in your, you know, your grandma always made it and your aunt always made it. And actually, that is a clue to the past. I've never thought about it like that, but that's so interesting. So I think we should probably get on to the, the topic of the podcast, which is your your food memory project. So although I very lightly explained in my intro what it is, I think it would be nice for the listeners if, if one of you could just explain in a nutshell exactly what the food memory project is. Absolutely. So the Food Memory Project, our vision is for this to be a platform where people can connect over sharing their memories of the foods that tell their stories. So it's kind of evolved and taken a few different forms since we started. Um, originally, our vision was to be something like, if you're familiar with the account Humans of New York, um, or there are, there are other humans accounts elsewhere around the world now, but basically, um, you know, allowing other people a chance to share their stories. And then as time has gone on, we've continued to do that as people have submitted memories to us. Um, but also, you know, sharing tips and tricks for how to create and document um, your own food memories. Um, and also just sharing other traditions and um, some of our own food memories as well, um, as well as others from around the world. Mm. So, You've kind of mentioned the um, influences there, but where did the idea come from? Was it a kind of a light bulb spark moment or something that you'd been discussing together for a while? Like how did it, how did it originate? You know, it really was something of that light bulb spark moment. Um, we had been talking for a long time about potentially collaborating someday in some way, um, just because our interests lined up so well, you know, with the food and with heritage and storytelling um, so in that sense, this kind of was a long time coming, but really the driver was, um, the idea came to me in the summer of 2020. So we were a few months into a global pandemic. Um, there was a lot of, you know, we were social distanced, we were physically isolated from friends and family. Um, and over in the U.S. especially, you know, there was a lot of other unrest happening. And it seemed like every time I turned on the TV, the news was focused on people arguing and things that made us different. So I just started thinking about, you know, what little thing can I do to bring at least some unity kind of to my corner of the world, or in this case, my corner of the internet. <laughs> um, and at the time, I was also registered to attend uh, an online food history conference. Um, and as I was watching that conference, you know, that idea of collaboration with my mom came up again. And that was just kind of when it came to me, um, you know, just, you know, this is this is a way that we can put our own spin on food history. Mm -hmm. And Lisa, were you, were you immediately up for the challenge? <laughs> oh, yes, I was definitely up for the challenge because, and this was kind of coincided with my interest in culinary heritage. And um, I had been starting to think on it and write on it as well over on, um, I actually have a genealogy blog. And so 
I'd started kind of teaching on that as well. So it was really a natural progression. And I think it really also married our skills, Sarah's and my skills well, because I, she had such a strong background, obviously in the food and the culinary part of it, much, much stronger than mine. And that, but I actually had a lot of the, um, the background technical things that we needed for, to, to put this together. So it really was, and it still is, it's a really nice um, mesh of our skills as we, as we started working on this. It must have been a really nice project for you to start together, given that I think you, you live quite far apart. I think I'm right in saying mm-hmm. my understanding of American geography is, is a little ropey, but I was looking on Google maps to work out if you were together or if you were going to be dialing in from separate places. And I think you're about five hours apart. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Five to six hours. We're about six hours, five to six hours now. And actually, when we started this back in 2020, we were even farther apart because I was living in Texas at the time. So I was a time zone behind and several hundred more miles away. It's uh, again, coming back to the the scale of the UK. I can't imagine being in a different time zone from my mum, but still in the same country. It's It boggles my mind. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it sounds like such a brilliant project for you to be doing with your mom and with your daughter. I just really, I really love that. We've really enjoyed, we've enjoyed working together. I think, I think we do well together and um, it it does kind of bring us Mm -hmm. to that next level of, you know, just connecting together. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Your project isn't just about recording people's stories. I know that you also focus on creating a sense of community. And I particularly liked the phrase on your website, think of it as a virtual potluck, but with no dishes to wash. And I think for our UK listeners, a potluck is sometimes known here as a fuddle, I think, where people will just, everybody brings a different plate and you all eat together and you enjoy it. So I just, I just thought that that was a really nice phrase. And I guess it would be nice to hear a little bit more about how you're working to create that sense of community. Yeah. So first of all, I like your term for potluck. Was it fuddle? <laughs> Fuddle. Um, I actually think that's um, a Midlands phrase. Okay. So I'm from the Midlands originally, although I live down in the southwest now. And I, I don't think it's one that's used around here. But yeah, Fuddle is what we would always call it. So at Christmas or say if you're having like an, an office party, although those things are of the past these days, um, everyone would bring mm-hmm. something in and you put it all on the table and everyone just sticks, sticks in and gets involved. But yeah, a potluck or a fuddle, I guess. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so that was one image that came to mind to us when we were trying to think of creating this community. Um, and then the other image that we use a lot is um, we, one of my favorite sayings is um, build longer tables instead of higher fences. Um, just this idea of kind of everyone pulling up a seat together, um, you know, bringing a dish and then sitting down around a long table. Um, there's also a song. Um, it's by a group called the High Women. Um, and the song is called Crowded Table. And there's in the chorus, the song itself isn't actually about food. I don't think they even mentioned food specifically. Um, but it's this imagery of, you know, the chorus starts out with, I want a house with a crowded table. Um, and that that to me has kind of become like our unofficial theme song. <laughs> um, just this idea of, you know, even though we're physically separated through the wonders of technology, we have people from all over the country, um, as well as some followers from all over the world, all different backgrounds um, coming together and sharing memories and finding common ground. 
I really like that. It's um, it's quite similar to something that uh, a chef who was on my podcast last year or possibly the year before, Asma Khan, who's quite well known in the UK, she speaks up a lot for diversity and she's um, of Indian heritage herself. And she talks about the way of kind of breaking down barriers is just to eat together. And that's something that she said on the podcast, but she's also said a lot on, you know, um, in other places and interviews and things like that. But the idea of that food breaks down those barriers and that you sit together, you talk and you share a good meal and suddenly you're all equal. And I really, really like that. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's it's really hard to argue with someone while you're eating <laughs> or to be unhappy while you're eating. So I think food is a good kind of, you know, leveling the playing field, starting on neutral footing. So you came up with the idea, you were both on board and you were in the middle of a pandemic. So how did you first get the Food Memory Project started? Well, we officially launched in September of 2020. So it took us a few months to kind of um, get off the ground. Um, you know, we both have, my mom has her genealogy business. I also work full-time as a dietitian. Um, so it was kind of in every little spare bit of time that we had, um, creating content, reaching out to people to kind of give us kind of seed content mm -hmm. um, that we could start sharing, um, building our website, working on social media. Um, and then when we did launch, luckily, you know, the response has been really good. We've continued to grow over the past almost year and a half. Um, and also just evolving, you know, it's, it's been a learning curve, um, learning, especially for me, not to hold too tightly to that original vision. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, always kind of keeping, keeping the dream in mind, but being willing to evolve, um, as you know, seeing <laughs> what really takes off and other things that maybe fall flat. Mum's laughing in the background there. <laughs> Oh, she, she knows. <laughs> it's hard though. I did. I did. Not holding to tell you. <laughs> I mean, and I think, I think to speak with that, it, it is. So as much as Sarah and I work together in the kitchen over the years, you know, we do have different working styles a little bit. And this goes probably to any two people who work together. So we did have to kind of learn a little bit of how to work together. Um, and, and part of that was also just learning how to work together from a distance as well. But fortunately, um, Zoom <laughs> is very helpful with that. Um, so we spend a lot of time video chatting types of things. So, you know, fortunately, technology is there to help us kind of get ourselves together. <laughs> In a way, um, having had to rely on on. Uh, Zoom and digital recording for me has been a blessing and a curse because when the when the podcast first started, it was very much that I would sit in a room with a cup of tea and a cake and have a conversation face to face with my guests, which I absolutely loved because, uh, like like you both, I just love mm -hmm. chatting to people with fa fantastic stories. And obviously, then when the pandemic hit, I moved to do everything virtual. However, I wouldn't be talking to you right now. I wouldn't have spoken to some of the people that I've spoken to who aren't in the immediate vicinity. And, and I think that, you know, when everything does eventually go back to normal, I definitely will want to take this hybrid approach of meeting up with people and having that face-to-face -face conversation, but also being able to speak to people further away like this. And it's, it's definitely a learning curve, but I think the world has adapted really well to, to this new way of doing things. I think it definitely has opened up some avenues of communication. And as you said, reaching out to folks that we would never talk to. And I think that is, in a sense, kind of 
what the Food Memory Project does is it allows us to talk to people we would never have talked to and, and to build start building those relationships, even if it is a cup of coffee virtually as opposed to face-to-face type thing. We've talked a little bit about your own family's background, but have you captured your, your own food memories? I, I think we have, and we continue to still work on that. Um, and, and I do certainly as the family historian for the family, but we have family traditions. We get together each Christmas or we were getting together each Christmas. Um, for one side of the family, we always had a potluck or another term would be covered dish that we would meet this. And the family has been doing this for 70 plus years. Wow. And so we were, we were not about to let COVID stop this. So it went <laughs> virtual. We've done two years now. We had a virtual potluck. So usually it's just coffee, not food, but it doesn't matter whether we're actually together in a room eating food and remembering the, that's when all the foods show up, you know, that your grandmother used to make and she's no longer with us. But then we start talking about food. Do you remember who has the recipe for the, the chocolate chip pie that Aunt Joanne used to make, or who, you know, does anybody have the pickle recipe that the great grandmother used to make kind of thing? So we constantly are talking. And while they're talking, I'm writing as fast as I can. <laughs> and of course, we've got the, 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 the story there as well. Um, so yes, we do. We typically tend to write down as much as we can. Um, we take I take photographs, Sarah takes photographs as well of of recipes, but we continue to make these recipes as well. And we seek out more recipes to actually make. And some of these foods are actually very tie into our culinary heritage, but others are simply something that have only maybe been happening one or two generations within the family. And they're just fun. And so they, when we eat them, they bring up fun memories. So um, one of the ones we just had Christmas this was something new that my mother started. We call it cereal mix. It's most people might think of it as Chex mix. And I think every family has their own recipe for it. And it was only ever made at Christmas time. And so my mother just always made it. She found the recipe in a cookbook and it was always a food we associated with Christmas. And so I still make it for Chris at Christmas and the kids always look forward to that at Christmas to have cereal mix. And so it's this thing that sort of has become a tradition yet. It really has nothing to do with our, our actual culinary heritage, but it does bring us together because you eat that food and you immediately go to those early Christmases. I know as a little girl, I remember the, how exciting it was. She's making the Chex mix now. <laughs> um, so Christmas yeah. is on the way. Yeah, it can be Christmas now because we have Chex mix. <laughs> You've kind of answered this question anyway, but uh, I'm going to, I'm going to throw it in. So why is it so important for people to capture their food memories and their, their food history? You know, I, th- I think that quite simply, it all comes down to connection. Um, we connect to those who are close to us and we connect to, we can connect to the past. We, we can connect to a past that may be just one or two generations, but when we start to explore our, our food heritage even more, we can start to connect even to past generations of, uh, that we never knew, but we can start tapping into that, um, that heritage and that history. And I think it's, it's a connection and it's, it's a groundedness. It helps us to ground in something. Um, it's, it's, that sounds kind of, I mean, it's very, it's intangible, but yet at the same time, I think we're all looking a lot of times for that connection, particularly during um, 
the pandemic, we want to connect to something solid. Mm -hmm. That makes perfect sense. As a country which has seen a huge amount of immigration and mix of cultures in a relatively short amount of time, I'm talking about America compared to the UK and Europe. Um, I assume this project is also an accurate reflection on the diversity of today's America. And actually, I can see that from some of the stories that you have on the site. But as time passes and more generations are born, do you think people are losing their family traditions? Well, reflecting diversity, that's definitely a goal of ours. Um, You know, something that's been really important to me from the very beginning is even as we share some of our own memories, I certainly don't want us to always be at the center of this. Um, I really want to center other voices. Um, I think there's always more we can do um, in terms of diversity, but it's definitely something that um, we've worked really hard at from the beginning. Um, And in terms of whether people are starting to lose their family traditions as generations go on, um, I think actually we've kind of seen the opposite happen over the last few years in the pandemic. Um, food being such a source of comfort and connection to family and to friends as well. Um, people have kind of gone back into the kitchen and turned to cooking and food um, to bring comfort and bring that sense of togetherness. Um, you know, we've kind of talked about how our family, we took our Christmas dinner virtual. Um, other people I know have gotten together and said, okay, we're all going to make a version of the same dish and log on to Zoom and eat together. Um, so those recipes or, you know, even if it's as simple as everyone order pizza from the same place in your own home, um, you know, food becomes, again, that means of connection. Um, and I think we've also been reminded of just how precious our time and our relationships with our family can be. So there's almost, I would say, probably more of a sense of urgency to preserve those family traditions now. That's a great answer. And I wasn't sure because that was quite a big question. And, you know, being in a, in a different a country, I wasn't quite sure how that would how that answer would go. But actually, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? That at a time when people are hunkering down, they, they're looking to comfort. And a lot of that comes from the way that their family has always done things. And that, that does make perfect sense. I get- And I can jump in here too. I I think one of the things that we've seen from a family history and genealogy point of view well before the pandemic is the proliferation of the DNA testing. People are testing their DNA to see where they were from. And that has also kind of exploded that culinary heritage interest because they're like, oh, I didn't know I had, you know, Italian heritage. I want to let me start exploring what that might mean. And it might be, you know, studying the history of the area where a family might have been from or tasting the foods of the country that their ancestors were from. So DNA testing, I think, has also kind of sparked that interest in family history, gene- genealogy, certainly. And I've kind of always gone with the, the 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 line that genealogy really should be a multi-sensory experience. So it's not just being in the records, but it is that piece of checking out, you know, you can take virtual tours of where your ancestors came from. You know, you can actually find those online and take virtual tours. That way you can learn about the recipes and start making um, the foods in your home. So there's lots of ways to explore that. And I think um, when as people have started to learn where, where their roots were centered or where their ancestors came from as they moved around the world, it's, it's um, given us a chance to really explore those roots more. 
I suppose food is quite an easy way to do that because we are very lucky that we have access to recipes and ingredients. Really, in the Western world, wherever we live, we can usually get hold of ingredients that we may not have been able to in the past. And so when you've discovered a little bit about your your family background and you suddenly think, oh, wow, I've got some Polish heritage or my ancestors came from a particular part of Africa, it's probably a lot easier these days to be able to look into it through the medium of food because things are more available to us now. So I guess that food is actually quite an easy route into discovering more of that element of your history. I think yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It is we do have that ability to to get some of those ingredients or those types of foods that we wouldn't have been able to in the past. I think you're absolutely right on that. I wanted to find out a bit about some of the stories that you've collected and I don't want you to give them all away because I want people to go and look at the website and read them for themselves. But do this is probably a question that both of you can answer in turn, but do you have a favorite? Oh, this feels a bit like having to pick a favorite child, but <laughs> um, I think, you know, as I was thinking about this question, I guess I have a couple of kind of broad categories of favorite memories. Um, so one of those, of course, being, as we've talked a lot about the memories that tie people to their loved ones. Um, we've gotten a lot of memories from people who have foods that remind them of loved ones who have passed away. Um, one of the very first ones we shared actually was from one of my college roommates um, who I've remained friends with. And um, she spent the first several years of her life growing up in India um, and was raised by a grandmother there. Um, and she shared how her grandma, when she came home from preschool um, at the end of every day, her grandma would have a bowl of raisin bran waiting for her raisin bran cereal and because her grandma knew that she didn't like raisins, she would pick out all of the raisins by hand. <laughs> um, and that was just, I thought that was a really sweet memory of food being, um, even something as simple as a bowl of cereal, food being a way to show others that we love them. Um, and then I think my other favorite kind of mini series that we did last summer, um, we reached out to several local food businesses in Knoxville, the city where I live in Tennessee. Um, if you have any Dolly Parton fans um, in England, I'm about an hour from where Dolly grew up. <laughs> um, so we reached out to several local businesses because um, I actually, I lived in Knoxville before. I went to graduate school here at the University of Tennessee um, and then moved away to Texas for a little while and then came back. Um, so in total, I've lived here about four and a half years, just not consecutively. Um, so of course I have lots of food memories, um, of lots of local restaurants and shops and Knoxville is really a great foodie town. Um, it's a great place for local businesses. Um, and we were lucky enough. I think we had three businesses that responded to us that we were able to interview. Um, so that was really special being able to talk to, you know, our local dairy who, you know, if you see red and white gingham in Knoxville, you know that you're in for some really good ice cream um, or, you know, a local coffee shop. Um, we have a French crepery and we got to talk to them about how um, memories of traveling in France helped to shape their business. Um, so that was really special, you know, being able to hear the stories behind places where not only I have food memories, but where the entire community comes together. 
I like that a lot. I like the idea that if you spot the the red and white gingham, then you know, (laughs) you know, (laughs) if you know, you know. And Lisa, what about you? Do you have a favorite or a couple of favorites that you can share? Oh, sure. Sure. So um, one of my favorites Sarah alluded to is a local coffee roaster and coffee shop there in Knoxville, Tennessee. And I got to do that interview and I was absolutely fascinated with it. I love coffee. So that's something I've always really enjoyed. And it for me, when I did that, I had just discovered about our ancestor who actually was um, from London and in the late 1600s, early 1700s, actually was known as a coffee man. He had a coffee shop there in London and I know exactly where it was. So I was like, my roots in coffee go really, really deep here, apparently. So um, I, I was able during that interview also to learn some of the science behind roasting coffee. They do micro batches. And so I was absolutely fascinated to learn kind of the, the science behind the food on that as well. So that was a real one of my favorite ones. Um, and I think one of the others is actually one of that Sarah and I did early together. And it, it revolves around my, my grandmother's cornbread recipe. Um, so that was one that we had um, recorded as well as written up about um, grandmom's cornbread, because I still have the cast iron skillet today <laughs> on that, that she would make that in. So I think that would be another one of my favorite ones as well. Do you still use the the skillet? Not a lot. Um, I have used it, but um, it's heavy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, modern advances, I think, have made our, our pans lighter. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you kind of hinted there um, that you, you did the interview. So talk me through the process of how a food memory is captured, because it sounds like it varies. Um, there are a few different ways that food memories come to us. So sometimes people submit them to us. Um, we do have a link on our website, uh, which we encourage people to look at and uh, share memories with us that way. Um, if people prefer, if it's easier to send us a DM on Instagram, we'll take them that way too. Um, in the very beginning, it was a lot of kind of cold emailing, um, reaching out to friends who, you know, especially being a dietitian, a lot of my friends are also dietitians. (laughs) So reaching out to them on Instagram saying, Hey, I noticed that you shared a memory of your grandparents' garden. Would you be willing to talk more about that? Um, things like that. Um, and then with the local businesses too, um, we were very intentional in trying to pick places that ideally where I had some memories already stored up. Um, and then also, you know, places that were either family run or that had like a very clear story. And that was essentially cold emailing. (laughs) So that's kind of, kind of how we collect those memories. Other times, you know, I've had people comment on one of our posts before and I said, that's great. Can you tell me more about that? It sounds quite similar to to me. <laughs> That's how I um, how I started, and actually how I found you. I think um, I quite often find myself, especially if my partner Dave is watching something on the telly that I'm not interested in, just kind of googling around on um, or kind of swiping around on Instagram and Twitter and coming across interesting people and thinking, "Ooh, I'd love to have you on my podcast." and and reaching out. And I think that's how it has to start, doesn't it? Because until people are aware of this project and and actually start to think, hey, you know what, I would really love to to speak to these women about my food story, then how else do you get going, really? That's a, that's a good point. I think just reaching out and if people are, once you kind of even through a cold call or, you know, just reaching out to somebody, people, when you start to talk about food, 
there's there's just this almost instantaneous kind of like oh yes I've got a story or oh yes I just love such and such or those kinds of things so I think it's a really interesting um it it I was a little nervous about it at first to be honest because you know to reach out to people kind of cold but I'm like oh wow this people are really into this 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 is not a problem to do this cold <laughs> no absolutely and and you're not selling something you're not trying to you're not wasting their time if anything what you're offering is to to share their story which for them they can then share with their friends and family and I I just think it's a it's a really lovely idea and slightly different to what I do but quite similar in the same way in that I just love to speak to people who have a some form of passion for food or work in the in the food and drink world or have created something delicious and and that's what you're doing but with the the history and the memories one of my favorite stories that I like to tell from actually right after we started the blog um, I was hanging out with some friends outdoors socially distanced of course and one of them said to me I relate to every single thing you've posted. And this friend, he had never met any of the people whose memories we'd shared. We hadn't been going for that long, but I thought to myself, okay, mission already accomplished. <laughs> um, you know, and of course there was still more to do, but it was so exciting and so meaningful for me to hear a comment like that. Um, so early on, just um, to hear that other people believed in what we were doing and that, you know, it was having the intended impact. Mm -hmm. It's that early proof that you needed to kind of spur you on and, and know that, yes, because there is always that worry, isn't there, that you're kind of putting things out into the ether and you don't really know if anyone is out there. Um, certainly for me, you know, my mum listens <laughs> um, and uh, hopefully your mum is reading them seeing as she's, she's involved, but um, it's that having that early approval is really important. And, you know, I found you from across the pond and absolutely love what you're doing. Yeah, that really does. You know, that means a lot to us. Um, we are expanding because this is ultimately what we've wanted to do all along is to kind of cast as far and wide as a, of a net as we could. And to, you know, connect people across, you know, across states was great to begin with. But um, to be drawing people in from other countries as well is really, really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. What's next for the Food Memory Project? Well, we have a lot of different things that we'd like to work on. Um, one thing, and I think, Mom, you might be able to talk about this a little bit more, is um, you know we do have our one-pager about um, nine ways to preserve your family's food memories. We want to create more resources like that, um, you know, possibly in different forms depending on what people need to really help people with that process of documenting their food memories. Uh, Mom, do you want to talk a little bit more about kind of what we're thinking there? Yeah, kind of creating ways and just kind of more formal formats that people would be able to then um, write down or record those food memories that would be important to them as well. Um, so that's that's one of the, our goals that we would like to work towards. And then I think one of the things that Sarah and I had talked, with, talked to each other about is really kind of exploring our own culinary heritage. Um, obviously, mine is is very um, deep into the UK. Um, Sarah's um, has some from the Lithuania and the Jewish diaspora in the, in the Lithuania area. And so we want to start exploring our own culinary heritage as, and we're looking to really be able to help people 
learn how to explore their their heritage and learn how to explore those foods from generations past. Reviving kind of lost recipes and traditions. That sounds great. My mom mentioned her her grandmother's, my great grandmother's cornbread that she used to make. And unfortunately, that's an example of a family recipe that we've kind of lost over the years. Um, There was one Thanksgiving where someone did take pictures on a cell phone. um, But unfortunately, I don't think those are recoverable at this point. Um, So that's kind of another project that I'd like to take on is kind of reverse engineering that recipe, um, trying to get as close as we can so we can have that again. And if it does get tweaked a little bit, then that's just part and parcel of, of the moving beast that is family history, I guess. Exactly. So how can my listeners get involved? Oh, we'd love to have your listeners um, check us out at the website. So our website is foodmemoryproject.com. And so you can check out other people's memories. You can check out some of the, the um, cultural heritage type posts that we, we put out there. But you can also find a link there if, if anyone has a food memory that they would like to share with us. Um, you can find a link there to submit it to us. We'd love to, um, we'd love to hear them. We'd love to, absolutely. And with those food memories, um, we always encourage people, you know, if you have photos or recipes, we'd love to have those as well, but that is absolutely not required. Um, You know, we can work with with what you've got. Um, It doesn't have to be something that you cooked. It can be a restaurant. Um, Another one of my best friends from college, when she submitted a memory, it was about a restaurant that was very specific to the area where she grew up. And then, of course, we also encourage people to follow us on our Instagram as well. Our handle is um, at food mem project, um, all lowercase, no spaces. We do post similar content on our Instagram to what we post on our website, as well as a lot of other kind of shorter form. Um, We like to share things that we see on other accounts. Um, We like to share about food holidays and other traditions throughout the year. Um, Sometimes I throw a little pop culture in there, like a book I've read recently or one of our posts in the last few weeks was about um, a Disney movie and how food played a part in that. <laughs> I know which one it is as well because I've seen it. But I'm not going to say anything. Um, we watched yes. it at Christmas with my nieces <laughs> so and it is a new firm favorite. <laughs> yes. And the the food aspect of that movie too, it's such a minor plot point like in the grand scheme of things. But of course, that was the thing that I gravitated towards when I watched it. Of course. Um, Without, without any spoilers, um, we're talking about the movie Encanto, which mm-hmm. we highly recommend watching if you haven't already, so you can see what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's brilliant. And I think there are so many great movies that do have food running through them as a subplot, because as, um, as a child, I'm in my mid-30s, you know, I grew up watching Beauty and the Beast. And actually, mm-hmm. Beauty and the Beast is not a film mm-hmm. about food, but when you think about the the be our guest and the that scene when they feed Belle on that first night. It's just so good. <laughs> I, I want to watch it now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And actually kind of a passion project of mine that I'd like to start working on soon. Um, <laughs> in, in addition to movies, mom's laughing because she knows um, I love musical theater and Broadway musicals. And I actually started making a list last year of all the different ways that food plays a part in shows like, um, you know, another British classic in a movie as well. Um, Matilda. Yes. Bruce with the chocolate cake. Of course. Bruce Bogtrotter. <laughs> yeah. I, I did get to see Matilda in the West End several years ago and almost just cried of sheer <laughs> happiness. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's 
that's something that when people think of Matilda, that's one of the scenes that they remember. And there are so many other examples of that as Absolutely. well. Um, so that's something extremely niche, extremely nerdy that I'd like to dive into. There will be a lot of people that are interested in that. And actually, oh, yes. um, a podcast that I recorded a few years ago when I just started up and still had my um, previous co-host was with a lady whose Instagram handle is Baking Fiction. Her name's Kate, and she looks for food stories within literature and has had a couple of books out where she's kind of uh, collated recipes that appear in really famous scenes in books and novels over the years. I think you'd love that as well. Yeah, I've noticed a trend lately too of a lot of um, cookbooks, whether official or unofficial, based on TV shows. Um, you know, of course, there are ones from food shows like Great British Bake Off will release cookbooks, but then other shows like um, Bridgerton. I saw an unofficial Bridgerton cookbook recently. Um, really? Oh, my goodness. I, I have no <laughs> idea what's in that one. I've seen Downton Abbey cookbooks. I've seen Jane Austen cookbooks. A lot of a lot of British things, actually. But, um, you know, even things like Parks and Recreation or Friends, things yes. that are kind of more popular yeah. in the U.S., um, <laughs> you know, even if food isn't a central focus of the show, you know, people find a way to kind of draw that out. I think the the Downton Abbey uh, cookbook was written by a food historian here in the UK called Annie Gray, who is amazing. She's uh, really, really cool and um, is definitely someone that I'd love to have on the podcast one day, if you're listening by any chance. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. And I really do encourage people to to go and have a look at the website and also your Facebook, you know, um, especially if there are any uh, US listeners out there, you've been doing some kind of lives and bits and pieces on there that people can get involved in so i'll share all of that on the show notes but yeah just wishing you the best of luck and hoping that this project grows and grows and grows because i think it's absolutely fantastic thank you so much well thank you thank you and thank you for so much for having us 